Guys, we got an amazing episode today, but before we jump in, tune in with us. Read the book. We're reading this book, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, we're doing a book club. So hop in on this book with us. You can start now. We're reading it for the whole month of August. Um, next week, we are going to do a book club episode where we're going to talk about our thoughts on it. So be a part of that conversation with us. Send us some questions. Um, but today, we've got another amazing episode. Um, take a look at our link tree. Give us a review. A like. Let's and without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Guys, welcome back. We got another great episode. We got Priya Shreether on the podcast today. She is an Emmy award-winning political reporter, host of Politically Speaking, Naval Officer, Northwestern University alum. Priya, welcome to Authentically Us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited. And um, just so you guys know, this is our second time recording this because we had some technical difficulties. Yes. But we are excited uh, because Priya is amazing. And because she's a reporter, I'm just, she just brings our game up. Like we just have to step up to like uh, thank match you. her. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I think what'll be really interesting is if like all my answers are completely different than the first time, then I'm going to have to really, you know, do a self check in like what happened in the last <laughs> few weeks. <laughs> hey, the thing is, we don't have that recording, so we won't know. That's true. We'll never know. <laughs> Man, well, let's let's get into it. Um, Priya, let's talk a little bit, uh, maybe give like us a, a vivid description of like what your upbringing was like and this kind of things that molded you today. Okay. So yeah, it's interesting because I'm sitting in my parents' house right now. So it's very fitting for me to talk about my childhood. I'm currently in San Antonio, Texas, which is where my parents have retired to. But I grew up outside of Boston, um, Massachusetts. My parents are immigrants from India. So I think that really shaped me a lot. Um, we hung out with you know, whatever other Im Indian immigrants were like in our area. But I actually grew up in like a predominantly white suburb of Boston. And I think that also really shaped me um, being, you know, one of like a handful of non-white kids in my elementary school and middle school growing up. Like, it's really sad because I see this huge, all these campaigns right now for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it makes my heart so happy because growing up, I didn't really see that many people like me on TV or in movies or any of that. Um, and yeah, I would say like I had a very standard like Asian immigrant <laughs> experience as far as th that being my parents, where they were very, you know, strict and hardcore about our education. So I was like a thousand percent expected to get straight A's. They put me in like chess club and math club and science club and like all the nerdy stuff. Um, and so, you know, I was definitely expected to perform academically. And then I would say that in some ways, I think Indian immigrants have like these different paths that they consider as success. So, you know, whether that be become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. Um, but the thing is, they also instill this sense in us that we should be very high achieving and that we will achieve in whatever we put our mind to. So that can be kind of a deadly combination if it goes in a direction that you weren't expecting, which is what happened to me. So I pretty much knew early on that I wanted to be a TV reporter. And so that's what I pursued. Um, I don't know if my parents were super jazzed about it initially, but, you know, they've definitely gotten on board when they see like the reasons that I got into the business and all of the cool things I've gotten to do over the last 15 years. 
I wanted to I wanted to pull back a little bit and talk about like your your high school and like growing up in Boston. Mm-hmm. Like I think of Boston and you think very like white aggressive people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then I think of like Indians and I think of like more reserve like family oriented. So I can only imagine um can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like being a handful of people who look like you and like if it was difficult or yeah so it's really syndrome yeah because I think that you know a lot of my friends um my Indian American friends growing up they had a lot of this the same experiences as far as the fact that our parents like wanted us to assimilate so in my case like my parents never taught me another language that wasn't English and part of the reason for that is their only common language was English so it didn't really make sense for my mom to teach me one language that my dad's side of the family didn't know. Um, But I do remember like very distinctly as a child, my parents did not want me to watch MTV. They literally didn't want me to listen to the radio because they thought all of that was like a bad influence. And I remember them just like having their own internal sort of struggle with like, what is American culture? And like, they wanted us to, again, like assimilate and be part of the community and all of that, but they didn't necessarily want us to become so Westernized that we forgot like our values. Right. And in Eastern culture and in Asian, you know, communities, it's all about family and like taking care of your family. And so they would even say things like growing up about how, you know, that's, not how we do things. And and they wouldn't Mm. necessarily mean we Indian, but that's basically what they meant. You know what I mean? Like your friends, they can do whatever they want. If they want to have parties when they're in seventh grade or sleepovers, like that's fine, but that's not how we do things. You know what I mean? So um, that definitely, I think, shaped me a lot. And then I would say too, like, I think what's interesting is if you grow up in a, and you're a minority in any sense. And like, for me, it was mostly white people that were around me. I bonded with like, the one other black kid and like the one other Hispanic kid. And we became like so close and it was really weird in some ways because it's not like we actually had a lot in common, like culturally, like a lot of the the traditions and stuff were super different. But the one thing we had in common was the fact that we were different from everybody else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so um, that was like my, some of my closest friends from my childhood were like the other non-white kids in my town. Um, and I do think it like built a lot of character. It wasn't easy. Um, I remember reading a Toni Morrison's A Bluest Eye when I was in middle school. And like that book like changed my world. I was like, oh my God, I relate to all of that. And it's funny because now like the Barbie movie's out. And I remember as a kid looking at Barbie and being like, I wish I was white. I wish I had blue eyes. I wish I could crimp my hair like that, you know? And it's so sad, like thinking back on that, because I remember these memories so vividly. And I wish I could go back and tell my little self that like, no, you're, you're pretty too. And like, and I'm just so happy that kids these days now can see people who look like them on TV and they can see it in doll form. And these things, it sounds so silly and small, but they're huge when you're little. You know, so um, all of that was like a big deal. And then I thankfully I went to a boarding school for my high school and that was super diverse, not just with kids from different like races and stuff, but from all over the country and all over the world and all different socioeconomic classes. And it really leveled the playing field because everybody like lived in a dorm. So it wasn't like a typical high school where you could see like, oh, this kid's driving that car to school or like whatever. I mean, maybe the most you could tell what kind of money someone had was if they were wearing like fancy clothes. 
But honestly, it was like this really weird, beautiful place where we were all there on this campus and we were focused on our schoolwork and our sports and our community service. And I just feel so lucky that at a young age, like at the age of 14, I got to meet people from all walks of life because most people don't experience that stuff until like maybe their 20s. And there's so many people in the country, like I feel like we talked about this last time, that actually don't, they can be in their 30s, 40s, and they've never met a Republican or they've never met a Hispanic person or they've never met a black, you know, and I'm just like, wow. But I mean, if you just stay where you are, which is a really easy thing to do, and I'm not judging anyone for doing it because that's the way most people grow up. They move like 10 miles away from wherever they were born and raised. And that's just the only exposure they have, you know? And so I feel lucky that I was, I think it was having that exposure at the between those ages of 14 and 18 that made me so adventurous. That made me be like, I want to get on a plane. I want to live on the other side of the world. I want to do crazy things because that's what I was exposed to. So talk to us about the point in your childhood when you you realized your parents were trying to um, raise you uh, to, to kind of fit in but not fit in so much where you lost who you are. What was it the point where you said, who and like what does it mean to be indie? Oh wait, Tony, you froze a little bit at the end of it. I missed the part where after you said, <laughs> "What was the point that you?" and then you and then you cut out. Yeah. yeah. What was the point that you, uh, in your childhood, that you asked yourself, "What does it mean to be indie?" Ooh, that's that's a big one. Um, so my parents had, um put me in these Sunday classes where I was learning an Indian instrument. And so a lot of the other Indian kids in town, they would do this because I don't know, that's just like what we did. A lot of the girl, like not just the girls, I guess everyone, you would either learn this Indian instrument or you would do Indian dancing, or they would have some sort of like Indian religious school on the weekends. So my parents put me in the instrument classes because I really liked music Um, And so that was sort of where I had my interaction with Indian people. And I guess I'm like a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but it's the truth. Um, You know, I think the thing with Indian people is that, I mean, there's studies that show this, like they're pretty high achieving, like, you know, you know, that like the past 10 spelling bees, the national spelling bees, the Indian little kids have won them and they can like spell all these 27 letter words and stuff. And so I think, unfortunately, one of the things that the parents sort of did, and I don't know if they did it intentionally or subconsciously, was it was a very much like, in my opinion, like a keeping up with the Joneses type situation where they would be like, well, look at, you know, look, I don't even want to use names because I'm afraid I'm going to say someone that was like actually part of this story, you know, but like, let's just say like, oh, look at Hema, you know, she she got a 1600 on the SATs when she was 12 years old. You know what I mean? And and those are like literal things that these kids would be doing. And so it created a lot of like anxiety and like a tiny bit of resentment towards these other kids because it was like this constant thing of wanting to keep up with everybody else and feeling like competition that was created amongst these like parents. But it's like most of them, they immigrated to the United States. They gave up so much to come here. And we were like their American dream, right? So they they were sacrificed, you know, so it was just a lot of pressure, I would say. And so it kind of in a weird way, and I, you know, again, I hate to admit this, but I was a teenager, so I didn't 
I couldn't necessarily, um, you know, be this introspective at that age, but it did make me, I think, like not want to be around Indian kids that were my age because I felt like I was had to compete against them. Right. And I've had cousins of mine who have grown up in different parts of the United States where there's way more Indian people. And they had so many like close Indian friends when they were growing up because there were so many of them that it didn't, it wasn't like this tiny little group of five of us that were all competing against each other, you know? And so part of me wishes that maybe if there was a bigger community, I wouldn't have had that experience. So I would genuinely say that it wasn't until I was 26 years old and I moved to India and I lived there for two years that I realized like, wait a second, not every Indian kid is like that stereotypical sitting in the library for 20 hours, you know? And I would also say that I was very different where I, yes, I prioritized my schoolwork, but I also like wanted to be social and I wanted to go to the school dances. I wanted to have friends. I wanted to play sports. And a lot of the Indian kids most of what they put their effort into was just schoolwork, you know? So, um, and that's what I thought all Indian kids were like. So again, it wasn't until I was like 26 to 28, I lived in India. I met so many Indian people and I realized, Hey, there's some of you I love. And there's some of you I don't really like. There's some of you I click with that I vibe with. And there's others of you that I don't really get along with. And that's just how people are, right? It has nothing to do with being Indian, but I didn't really get that because I just hadn't been exposed to that many Indian people until I actually went to live there. And that was when I really kind of got in touch with my Indian roots. Like I was able to connect with my family who still lives over there. And so now when I meet other Indian people, I'm like, oh, so where are you from in India? And that's like an actual reference point in my brain. And I know like, oh, well, in that state, you guys eat this kind of food, you know? And so I feel more like, and so another thing I would say is, so my parents are from different parts of India. So they have two different religions and they speak two different languages. And it's interesting, and I'm sure you guys have heard this from other people, but the Indian community, they don't know what to do with someone like me because I'm basically almost considered like a mutt where I'm like half half North Indian, half South Indian. So that's another reason that I didn't really fit in when I was growing up because there would be like the Punjabi clique and then like the South Indian girls would hang out over here. And because I just didn't fit into either group because I was a mix of both. And then I didn't fit in with the white kids because I wasn't white. You know what I mean? So it's like... And so actually my very best friend from Boston, she was biracial, half black, half white, because she had the exact same experiences as me where she'd go hang out with the black kids and they're like, oh, you're white. And she'd hang out with the white kids and they say you're black. And so we and she was like an excellent student, you know, so we we had so much in common. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until I went to India, I was able to meet so many different people. They accepted me for who I was. And, you know, you guys have maybe even heard the term like a coconut. I think that they use that for different types of people where they'll say you're brown on the outside, but white on the inside. And people used to say that to me because I didn't know how to speak an Indian language. And I was like a little self-conscious of that. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not a real Indian because I don't speak an Indian language. Or like, I guess I'm not a real Indian because I don't really practice the re- any re- like Indian religion on a regular basis. And then as I've grown older, I've realized like you, there isn't a definition, like you don't have to follow a checklist of things that that's not what makes you Indian. You know what I mean? And, but it's an evolution and it's a journey and you just have to become comfortable in your identity, you know? And I'm proud of myself that I accidentally ended up exploring that by going to live there because that was like hugely, hugely transformative, you know? Yeah. And like, uh, I find it so interesting that Indians that you've met in America, you felt like you had to 
compete with to prove, I guess, your um you being Indian. But when you go back to India, it's not like that. And I, I think that goes to show that, like, for people of color, we feel like we can't be ourselves <laughs> and still win. We have to achieve and impress on to these incredibly hard standards at the risk of losing who we are um, originally. Yeah. And I think like another big point that I've learned is to learn about a person and their background. Right. And so just like I said, that there are people in America who have only grown up and lived within 10 miles. That's the same for India. You know, like there's even my own relatives who they in some ways have lived in a very insular little world. And so they have preconceived notions about, oh, well, you're an American, you're probably a spoiled little princess, you know? So, um, but that's just because that's what they've seen. That's what they've heard of. So I try to not like judge, even though they're kind of judging me a little bit, um, I'm trying not to judge them right back, you know? And I'm like, all right, let's sit down, have tea. Let's get to know each other. Let's talk. And usually when you have those conversations, you realize, wait, I have way more in common with this person than I thought, you know? And so it's just all about being open-minded. And that's another thing. A lot of my friends who lived in India at the time I did, they were called, I think I was telling you guys about this people of India. Indian origin. So they were like Brits and Aussies and Americans who all their parents had immigrated from India, settled in those places. They grew up in those countries. And we all ended up back in India in our mid twenties. Um, and like, what's funny is when we all went back to India, our parents were telling us stuff like, you know, you can't go to a bar out there. You guys can't go clubbing because you're going to be labeled, you know, a bad girl. And what they didn't realize is in the 20 or 30 years that they were living in the United States and Australia and the UK, India has evolved like tremendously. And when you go to these big cities like Mumbai and New Delhi, it's like, there are nightclubs, there are bars, there are cafes, people are wearing jeans and, you know, crop tops. Like it's actually very similar to the US than they would even know. But they, again, are stuck in India from the 70s. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like what they're imagining doesn't even exist anymore. So it's like we're creating our own memories with today India, not the India that you guys grew up in, you know? So it's just such a complex thing that's not, you know... It's not very straightforward. So I want to transition a little bit. Talk to us about what got you into reporting. Yeah. So I made that decision, I think, when I was like in high school. I just ha I used to watch the local news reporters in Boston and speaking about I, I think we I told you guys about this. There was one Indian woman on a local news station in Boston. And I remember seeing her and to this day, she's still a local news reporter. She's now in Florida. And I like write to her from time to time. And I'm like, you're the reason that I'm on this crazy journey because I thought, oh, if she can do it, I can do it too. And so I sort of started researching, like, what do these local news reporters, you know, how did they get to where they are? But I think what appealed to me about the job was that you're not sitting at a desk because I'm not the type of person who wanted to be like chained down to a desk nine to five. I wanted to be able to go outside, experience new things, meet new people. I always wanted to be challenged and learn new things. But I think the biggest thing that I always knew is that I had to feel like I was contributing something to the community or the world. That's like super important to me. And so that aspect of service that I think comes along with journalism, as far as like 
holding government leaders accountable or informing communities when there is like some sort of emergency or helping people find the resources they need. Um, that really appealed to me. And that's basically what led me on this 15 year journey that I've been on now. We'll talk about how much, how important representation is. Tony and I talk a lot about that and, um, just in our, our podcast, how important representation is just because you saw that one lady who looked like you, you're like, I can do that. And it's so awesome that, like you said, mentioned earlier about the, um, Jedi councils or the, you know, justice, equality, diversion and diversity and inclusion committees now are now doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, something as simple as, you know, seeing a a black person that is in upper management, mm-hmm. or it could be as something as huge as uh, having a black uh, what was that Disney character mermaid? Like oh, yeah, the Little Mermaid, yeah. It could be like those, like you said, as a child, it doesn't seem that big of a deal, but like in the grand scheme of things, it is a big deal. Like, look at the woman you are now, just because you saw somebody who who looks like you and it's so awesome that you message her which is super cool yeah. <laughs> yeah i know i think she probably is like whoa creepy stalker like 15 years later like still no I, i'm just kidding but no i mean i think it's so important and from a news perspective i think what's huge is that you know we have a huge responsibility when we're working for these giant news organizations like nbc or abc or cbs we're like in a lot of ways dictating what people are talking about and like discourse and we have the power to like change policy right you know i I mean, that's the power of technology and the fact that and and these days it's transforming so much because anyone has a phone, they can record things, they can be a blogger, they can give their perspective, they can put it up on Twitter, they can put it on YouTube, they can create a podcast, whatever you want to do, right? Um, But I think the big thing is when you have reporters and journalists and especially people of color in management positions in newsrooms, they want to cover the things like the George Floyd murder. They want to have those uncomfortable conversations about why is it that so many black men are being killed by law enforcement, right? I mean, and I'm not trying to say that if you had a fully white newsroom with a bunch of white managers and a bunch of white journalists that they wouldn't also pick up on that story. But if you're a person of color, that hits differently. And you know that your community is talking about this stuff and it's important and they deserve answers. They deserve accountability and they deserve justice just like anybody else. And so it's so important that we have a seat at the table to demand that these stories be covered by the mainstream media, right? And I think I struggled with that a lot in the beginning of my career because there weren't, even in the 15 years that I've been doing this, I see so many young Indian girls getting into the business. And it's like so exciting to see because I can remember just even five, eight years ago, there was like five of us in the United States and we all know each other. Like we all follow each other on social media. And now there's like maybe 15 of us, which is still like not a lot, honestly, if you think about the entire country, but that's, I mean, the numbers are climbing. Um, So, but what I was going to say is like, I don't know if you guys watch Family Guy, but you may remember Trisha Takanawa, Asian, then they used to call her Asian reporter, Trisha Takanawa, right? And so that was always my fear because there were people in the beginning of my career who told me, don't pigeonhole yourself. Don't be that girl that's always doing the stories about people of color. You need to be the girl that does all of the stories, right? So in, I almost on purpose would steer away from those stories because I didn't want to be like, the cliche 
Asian girl that's doing all the Asian stories, right? And it wasn't until um, there's a lot of these uh, affinity organizations in the journalism world. So they have the Asian American Journalists Association, the National Association of Black Journalists, and uh, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. And every year they have an annual convention. And it is like a pilgrimage. Like everyone who identifies as part of that community basically comes out and we all talk about what it's like to be a journalist and be Asian. And, you know, some of the first people who were ever in the business like decades ago, they'll come and they'll talk about their struggles. And it's so cool to see how far we've come. And now all the big recruiters come. Um, and it wasn't until I went to one of those conventions last year in Los Angeles that I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do the whole I'm not going to do the Asian stories anymore because I don't I'm going to do it and I'm going to be proud of doing it. And, you know, I can't even tell you, like, I've had people in the San Diego community who are Indian, like, reach out to me and say, like, that meant so much to me. That meant so much to my kid. And it, like, makes me emotional because I'm like, that's what was missing from my own childhood, you know? And if I had the power to even do it in one little community on one station, I would be an idiot to not take advantage of having that seat at the table. Yeah. And I... I just I love that. And I I was just thinking about this. I'm like, just as much as you were that little girl watching that other lady, what's her name? I don't want to just call Sir her Bonnie. Servani. Okay. Servani. It's like there is somebody who is watching you, somebody probably here in San Diego, and is watching Priya on the TV daily, and it was like, Oh mommy, I want to do that. It's like, I don't know, when you hear that, like what do you think of? Like, does that does I that mean, give you, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it gives me chills and it makes me proud. I think one thing that's hard is like, I never want to take myself too seriously. You know what I mean? So I, I try to caution myself sometimes because I sometimes see people who are like, I'm changing the world, you know? And I'm like, okay, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> but I think it's also important to remember where you came from and the responsibility of the position that you have and to treat that with respect. You know what I mean? Because I fought really hard to get to where I am. And I think sometimes when you're doing your daily grind and you're like waking up and you're brushing your teeth and you're going to the gym and then you're going to work and then, you know, you forget about that little girl who didn't have someone like me to look at on TV, you know? And so I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily think that I'm like changing anyone's life, but even if it's like more of a subtle thing, like they don't necessarily think, Hey, I want to be a TV reporter, but it's even a thought that went through their head or they see someone and they they, they look up and they, that, you know, that's just as important too, you know? So yeah, I mean, it, I do feel emotional when I think about stuff like that. Um, and it's still like crazy to me just because I feel like we're in the year 2023 and the fact that there are still so many glass ceilings for so many different things is just like shocking to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but that's why it's so important to learn about not just like your own history, but the history of our country and like your community, because we've made a lot, I, we made a lot of strides. We still have so much farther to go though, you know? So you alluded to. George Floyd and other um, unarmed black men being shot at the hands of police. So, and my question is, um, is the public sometimes missing more than what we solely get from, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really hard, I think, because um, people's attention spans are obviously really small. And I can just tell you that from doing TV news, like our average story is literally two minutes long, right? 
Um, so unfortunately, sometimes we don't have time to like dive into these deeper issues, you know, and I do think that's why sometimes like news magazine programs, like 60 minutes, they can do a really great job of sometimes they'll devote like 20 minutes into like, Hey, let's look into this. And same with like investigative journalism, like they'll, you know, take a deep dive into like, let's look at the Minneapolis police department and let's break down the stats there, you know? So major shout out to all the investigative journalists out there because they're doing the really hard stuff. And that's why, like, I encourage people to, you know, read your local newspaper, like click on, you know, put the MBC7 app on your phone. Like I'm going to give our own news organization a shout out because we need the community support to do that kind of journalism. And that's the kind of stuff that's like harder to do than just showing up on a crime scene and saying, hey, this guy just got shot by the police. You know, it's like, wait, let's follow up and do a deeper dive. And sometimes those stories can take weeks. So there are like really great, um, one, for example, is ProPublica. They do like really great investigative journalism. So I would say like seek out, you know, that kind of reporting um, because they they do great stuff. But yeah, I mean, so I remember you guys probably remember Michael Brown. He was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. I got sent there. I forget what year it was. I think it was like 2015 or 14 or something like that. And I remember being in Ferguson and that was one of the craziest stories I've ever covered because I, at this point I had been overseas for two years. I've been to some crazy places around the world and to see a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri at night, have the national guard come out. And then you have like people who are protesting and they have a reason to be protesting, but then you had a whole other group of people who were trying to take advantage of the insanity and they were looting all the stores and then there was like tear gas being deployed. And I was like, this is the United States of America. This is bananas. But I was like, surely this is a moment of reckoning. And there was so much that came out of that Michael Brown shooting that I was like, we're not going to see these again. Or like, they're going to stop <laughs> happening as, you know, and then, yeah, yeah. no, they didn't stop. <laughs> so it was, you know, it's really sad, but I'm proud that like, so, I mean, the George Floyd, we saw rallies happening around the world, you know? So that just shows how much the people who are out there filming it, the fact that those reporters went there and started doing the stories, that's what got the momentum going and people said enough, you know? And that's also the kind of stuff that gives me chills because that's, it's so cool to see people care the one, my biggest pet peeve and one thing that I just, I mean, I might even use the word hate is people who are apathetic, care, care about your world, care about your community. And, you know, I might not even agree with your opinion, but if you're like fired up enough to go out in the streets and protest for some reason, that's so cool. That's the way stuff gets done and gets changed, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been really hard covering stories like that. Because what I, even when I went to Ferguson, I went to the community. I was like the, one of the first reporters on the ground there that came, I flew in from Chicago. I was living in Chicago and the people who lived there, they were like, Priya, this is like Thursday in Ferguson, dude. Like you have no idea. This stuff yeah. happens every week and we complain and we say things and nobody cares, you know? And then, and I'm talking to them and it was, and no one listens to them and they just felt like their voices weren't heard. You know, and again, it goes back to like, why, why do we need people like us doing the reporting? Because I'll sit there, I'll listen to you. Tell me, show me what's happened here. Show me the videos. Let's talk through it. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So it seems like you, <laughs> it seems like you're, you always want the tea. You're like, Oh no, tell me the tea so I can <laughs> decipher it. So I can tell everybody else what is actually happening and be clear on what is happening. Well, it makes me angry for them. Right. And that's yeah. one of the annoying things about my job is like, I swoop in at like hour 11 after people have been wronged Mm. for years, decades, lifetimes. And then I shine a light on it and it's like, boop, oh, you know, the second people catch wind of like, oh, NBC's on it. It's like, okay, wait, oh crap, let's get our stuff in order. Let's get our ducks in a row, you know? And it's just really sad that that's what it takes for me, for us to shine a spotlight on something. And then these corporations or whoever's doing the, the wrongdoing suddenly get their act together because now they're going to get canceled or, you know, the world is going to start chiming in and saying, Hey, you can't do that. You know, but that's like what we say that part of our, the biggest privilege of our job is we're giving a voice to the voiceless, you know, Mm -hmm. for the people, they have a voice. It's just, no one's listening to them. So we're Mm -hmm. giving them the platform to be heard, you know? And so, yeah, I'm like, tell me everything. Like, let's talk. And, and I find myself being a therapist sometimes, you know, and there are people from stories I've done years ago that like reach back out to me. And it's been challenging because it's like, there are times where I'm like, you know, it's like a doctor where you can't get emotionally involved in someone else's life to the point that it's like, you know, taking over your own life. But half the time I've realized that people just find so much appreciation in the fact that you're listening to them, you know? Yeah. And people just start calling me and telling me all kinds of crazy things. And I have to explain to them, like, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't give you legal advice. I'm not like a nonprofit leader, so I can't directly connect you to resources that are going to help you. I'm not a billionaire, so I can't give you any money. <laughs> but the yeah. most I can do is listen to you and again, like amplify your story. And mm-hmm. I've been so just as much as I've seen people get scammed and um, taken advantage of, I've also seen so much kindness and generosity, I have to say. I've done stories um, of people, especially during COVID, who, you know, one man, for example, um, he was a janitor and he obviously lost his job during COVID because there were no schools open. I met him. He and there was a huge problem in California at the time where people were not getting their unemployment money on time. And there was like six months going by and people weren't getting any money. So if you live paycheck to paycheck, like how are you supposed to pay your bills? You know? So at this point, this man, like all he had left was his little bicycle. I think he had his apartment still because they were doing the eviction moratorium. So he couldn't get kicked out. But I think like somehow his like power got shut off. Like he was at the end of his rope, this man. And he had done everything that you were supposed to do as far as like calling all the numbers, showing his documentation. I met him. I remember he scooted up to me on his little bicycle. He had all of his documents in a row. Um, we did the story And, um, somebody called the station after they saw the story and they said, we're going to pay that man's rent for three months. And so then I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so I was trying to find him. I'm like, Walter, where did you go? I'm calling him. And then my cameraman said something to me. He's like, do you think it's possible that he could have hurt himself today? Because he just kept saying things like he was like, this is it. This is my, I'm talking to you is my final thing, you know? And he was getting so like worked up. And I was like, Oh my God, could that be? And so I was like thinking, do I need to call the police to do a welfare check? Cause I knew what his address was. And right before I called the police, he called me back and he was super distraught. And I go, Walter, I have amazing news. One mm. of our viewers has agreed to pay your rent for three months. And to this day, he still texts me like every three months. <laughs> And he's like, thank you so much, you know, and again, that makes my heart so happy, but it's really the viewer who saw the story, who was like, 
I'm going to help out and I'm going to step up. And so just as many people who are doing crappy things to other people, there's a lot of people doing really nice stuff for other people too. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, have you ever been given a story and been told what to like, what to say in wrestled with, this is not how I want to report on this story. I get this question a lot, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, the liberal media or they have these grand conspiracy theories that somehow we all get on a conference call with President Biden every morning and he's telling us how to report things like, no, spoiler alert, that is not happening. (laughs) Um, So, no, I mean, I would say, like, again, this has been a trajectory over the span of my career where now, I mean, sometimes I get assigned stories. Um, a lot of times I'm generating my own story ideas. And then sometimes, you know, I'll do a story and they'll say, oh, you didn't really get the other side of the story, right? So one big thing I was covering recently was you guys may have heard about the surveillance technology that they have, these smart street light cameras that they want to put up all over San Diego, right? And the police want them because they say it helps them track crime. But a lot of, again, black and brown communities are saying that they're going to be putting more of these streetlight cameras in high crime neighborhoods. And a lot of those zip codes happen to be, of course, minority zip codes, right? So I happened to do a story and I didn't have enough time. So I only used a soundbite from the police, which was very wrong of me. Obviously, I should have also had the soundbite from somebody who was opposed to the cameras. And so in that scenario, my boss was like, uh, hello, you need to put <laughs> put the other side of the story in there. So that's really the only that's usually the only thing that sometimes like in that situation, that was just an idiotic mistake on my part. But sometimes when you're covering a story, um, your managers, like they might just have more experience than you. So if you're covering something like the housing crisis, they might say, hey, you know, there's another school of thought that says that, you know, instead of doing rezoning to create more housing in San Diego, maybe we should think about the city if we ever have a, a budget surplus using their money to build housing instead of trying to rely on private developers. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't even know that just never occurred to me before because I'm not a housing expert, right? So some I would say those are the only things that sometimes our managers will like direct us to think about something that maybe we hadn't thought about to include, you know? But if you're a really good reporter, you actually should be figuring that stuff out on your own. Like when you're interviewing your sources, you should be asking them like, hey, you know, is there any other way that we could be thinking about this? You know, and that's, you have to do your homework. And that comes with just, again, like when I was a baby reporter, Um, I needed a lot more direction, but I wouldn't say no one's ever like, okay, we're going to approach the story and we're going to brainwash everyone into thinking that, um, you know, Trump stole the election or something or that, you know what I mean? Like, no, they're not telling us that everything has to be based in facts. Um, And and it's been hard, right? Because people lie like politicians. Um, The former president has done it quite a bit. Um, And it's our job to fact check them. And that, again, that requires resources and time. And that's another reason that everybody out there needs to support journalism, because if we don't do that, how are you supposed to know what's true and what's not true? That's when we turn into a country like North Korea, you know, when people aren't asking the questions and the people in power can just say whatever they want. And we're just led to think that that's the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're supposed to be checking the government and checking anyone who has any sort of power, whether that be corporations elected leaders or whatever. Well, shout out to you, Priya, for doing your due diligence and also caring. 
because I, I can see it. I can hear it. Hopefully the listeners, you can, I can hear it in her voice, how much she cares and does her job well. But a little bit like, so a little bit on me. I do a lot. They, I'm, I'm half Jamaican and they say Jamaicans work a lot and I have a bunch of jobs, right? I do podcast. I, 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 I'm a, your orange theory coach, you know, yes. <laughs> but you do a lot too. You are a reporter. You travel all around and you're also a naval officer. How do you balance the two? Yeah. I mean, um, sometimes I joke not very well because I do get overwhelmed <laughs> sometimes. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. So I'm in the reserves. So our commitment is one weekend a month and two weeks a year. That's the minimum. So there's a lot of streaks. I mean, once a month I go working, you know, Monday through Friday at NBC. Then I do my two days of what we call drilling, which is working in the Navy Saturday and Sunday. And then I go right back to work Monday through Friday. And every three months, I have to fly to Fort Worth, Texas to do my drilling in Texas. So that makes it even more complicated because I get out of work on Friday, catch a flight, go all the way to Texas, work for two days, fly back to San Diego, and then start work again on Monday. You know, Fortunately, as you can tell, I like to be busy. So even when I have free time, I tend to like create imaginary things that I have to do and then like fill my entire day. Um, but I will say that's something that I'm trying to work on because I don't think it's necessarily good to just fill your day with activities all the time. I think it's good to sometimes like sit in silence and with your own thoughts, which I think that's something that's like scared me a lot is my t- mind tends to rush and I start thinking about like, oh my God, remember that thing that that girl said to me in second grade? I wonder if she, you know, and I'm like, no, Priya, stop, stop. And so the way, <laughs> the way that I tend to like avoid overthinking the past or overthinking the future is by keeping myself really busy. But I think there's a lot to be said about also just like being present and like not having something that's distracting your brain, you know, because that's what a lot of these activities can be. Um, But yeah, it's hard. I mean, I have to maintain a schedule. um, And I think like with anything in life, you just have to prioritize. Um, You make time for the things that you want to make time for. And I think you have to also learn when to say no, because you don't want to do so many things that now you're only giving 20% of yourself to all of the things you're doing. So in the past year, I was um, the co-president of a local nonprofit. And I said, I cannot do this anymore. It is too much. <laughs> and it was a tough, you know, a lot of people are like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I was like, nope, I'm sure. Um, and the second I quit, I felt a huge like weight off my shoulders. And I really have not regretted it at all. I just knew that I couldn't devote the attention that it deserved. And I wanted them to go find someone else who could put put more energy into it. So I think, you know, do things while you can still be passionate about them and you feel like you're giving something back. And the second it starts feeling more like a chore or like you're just checking the box and you're not really checked into what it is that you're doing, maybe then you have to reconsider, is this something that I should still be doing? And it's fine to end chapters. That is okay. (laughs) You know, not everything that you do, you need to do it forever. You know, I often think to myself, like, am I still learning? Am I being challenged? Am I giving, am I, you know, what, or is it just stagnant? And if it's mm-hmm. stagnant, then maybe maybe I can use that time and devote it somewhere else. Well, I hear all that. And the question is, what do you still want to accomplish then? Oh, man, that's hard. Um, yeah. So I think, as I've said a lot, that you know, when you're 
I think in school, school is such a like a linear path, right? Where you like graduate from ninth grade and then you go to 10th grade and then you go to 11th grade. And I think what's hard when people are done with school is they're just like, oh, wait, now I'm just like in this big open adulthood (laughs) space where it's like there aren't, you know, I mean, some professions like in the military, there are sort of steps and that's sort of built into the, the career. But I had created all these like random timelines for myself, like, I want to win an Emmy award by the time I'm 30. That didn't happen. I want to be a national news reporter by the time I'm 35. That didn't happen, (laughs) you know, but then a lot of other crazy things happen. Like, you know, I went and lived overseas. I ended up joining the military. Now I have my own show. And by the way, I did win an Emmy. It just wasn't when I was 30. (laughs) So did that make a huge difference in my life? No. Um, So yeah, I try to not give myself like very specific goals because I think that's like, a really great way to like get disappointed in life. You know what I mean? Or feel like you're not uh, achieving. I would say like, I do still have aspirations to be a national correspondent. And that is something that I'm, you know, trying to figure out right now, if that's something that can be a next chapter for me. Um, but I, I, I still love journalism right now. I think this is what I want to continue doing with my life. And I'm definitely, you know, I hope that I'm continuing to contribute and give back. And yeah, the same thing with the military. I still, there's a lot of things I want to do. Um, I would love to eventually maybe go on a deployment. Um, so yeah, I mean, nothing really super specific. So then what has been, I hear a lot of success and I'm so <laughs> proud to, to, to see and to hear and to watch you do it. Um, and to be a small part of it. Um, <laughs> What what do you think your biggest pivot has been or maybe your like most challenging moment has been in your in your career? Oh my gosh. So yeah, I'm glad you actually brought that up because I feel like so far I haven't talked about any of that and there have been very long periods of unemployment. Um there have been times where, you know, um in our industry a lot people get laid off or they'll be, you know, they'll they'll go to a new job and then it turns out that it was a startup and it didn't really have the financing to work out. So people have to jump and, you know, it's, it's very unstable. And so there have been, there's been a lot of that in my life. I think I've honestly spent almost like maybe a year and a half of my 15 year career unemployed. Um, And those were some really hard times just because um, I questioned everything. I was like, am I good enough? Is this worth it? Should I keep going? Should I just find a different path? That's like, more stable, you know? And it's funny because I remember watching the, um, was it the golden globes or what was the award show recently where everything everywhere all at once won like everything. (laughs) I think it was, was it the Academy Awards maybe? No, maybe. No, no, no. Well, whatever. It was the Oscars. Yeah. And it was funny because, you know, that movie, by the way, it was full of Asian people. And so they, it was like the first time an Asian woman won best supporting actress, but a lot of them were quote unquote, older by Hollywood standards, you know, and they, you know, I remember the, both the woman and the man who were the two lead actors in that movie were saying, you know, there were so many times that they wanted to give up and they didn't. And they thanked all those people who stuck with them and told them, don't give up, keep going. And that's how I feel. And I, I've had so many people in my life who have said that to me. Um, and I really want to thank them first of all, because that, you, you have no idea how sometimes the littlest thing you can say to someone when they're in a period where they're questioning themselves, how much that can mean to them. Um, and so 
those little people, I mean, not, they're not little people, but those little words, um, played a huge role in my life. And by the way, I still have those moments all the time where I'm just like, you know, do I have what it takes? Am I even good Mm. at this? You know, maybe Mm. I'm not. I mean, I have so much self-doubt. I wish I didn't still, but I do. Um, And I think speaking of the title of your podcast, Authentically Us, one thing I have learned is to just be more open about it, you know? And I think I had a meeting with the general manager of my station recently. And I told her when I walked into her office, I don't know what the purpose of this meeting is, but one thing I have learned is that I tend to just keep quiet a lot because I don't want to be someone that ever comes off as complaining um, or starting any sort of confrontation. But sometimes you need to just explain to someone how you feel or what your goals are. And that's all you need to do. And people will receive it and they hear it. And once they know it, they can start looking for things that might a mentor or a path or an opportunity and they'll reach a helping hand. Maybe not everyone will do that, but some people might. And so it's worth it. And so that's what I'm trying to do now at the age of almost 40 is like be willing to say those things. And I went into her office and I've said it to her. I said, I don't know if I'm good enough. This is where I see myself. This is what I want to do. But so I have a lot of days where I think maybe I'm just never going to make it there, you know, Mm. and she received it really well. And, you know, I was proud of myself that I went and did that. So I don't even know if that answered your original question, but <laughs> it did. It did. Yeah. So, so Priya, what does it mean for you to be authentically you? Yeah, I would say that being vulnerable, um, being sitting with the uncomfortable thoughts that I have in my head, like I said, and not just constantly filling up my day so that I'm so busy that at the very end of the day, the only thing I can do is go to sleep because I'm so tired. Um, you know, and I told you guys before, like I quit drinking alcohol. I haven't drank alcohol in four years. And that was a huge life decision for both my mental health and my physical health. It was tough because a lot of people use alcohol to, you know, avoid things. But for me, being authentically me is like sitting with the uncomfortable stuff and getting through it, even if it's not easy. And then also opening up to other people and sharing the scary stuff, my fears, um, the things I'm insecure about. Um, I would say those are the biggest things. And in this world, it's just so easy with Instagram and stuff for people to only put their big celebration moments and, you know, all those milestones that society has told us that we're supposed to be so excited about. And what's funny is for me on Instagram, the things that speak to me are the people who have had like unconventional stories or the people who have gone through adversity and triumphed and the people who had the tough times and didn't give up. Those are the stories that speak to me. And I think to myself, I can't be the only one, right? And so if that's true, then why not be more open about when you've stumbled and you've fallen? Mm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and to me, that's, that's way more authentic than seeing someone do a little TikTok dance or seeing a new makeup (laughs) tutorial. I want to hear those raw stories, those hard stories. How did you get through them? That's the stuff that I love. Priya, this has been amazing. Uh, So good. Um, Better the second time. Yeah, much better the second time. Although the first time was great, too. It was still fire. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, we don't remember the first time, so it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So now we're going to transition to our next segment, 
called Rapid Fire. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know the drill. We'll ask three questions. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Don't text uh, your coworkers. <laughs> First thing that comes to mind. All right, let's go. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? Oh, my God. Okay. I think I'm going to have to say Ted Turner, which is so random. And a lot of people might not even know who he is, but he's the guy who started CNN. And he um, he's done a lot of weird things. He was like a Olympic sailboat person. He like sailed around the world. And then he also had like these bison ranches. And so then he started like a bison restaurant chain. And that's what I love about him because he's like you guys where he has so many hustles and he's so passionate about so many different things. And CNN was another example, by the way, everyone told him he was crazy. No one's ever going to watch a 24 hour news channel. And guess what? They were wrong. And he had the last laugh and he left all the way to the bank. So yeah, I would think Ted Turner, he's just kind of like a badass. <laughs> wow. I love that. See y'all, she really likes this stuff. Okay, question number two. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? Oh my God. I would say probably moving to India, like at the age of 26, packing up two suitcases, having a one-way ticket. And I knew like a few cousins, yeah. And like a few aunts and uncles that I hadn't really seen in like 10 years. And I was just like, let's freaking go, (laughs) you know? And I remember sitting on that airplane and I was like terrified, but I think I also told you guys this, like I have this way of making big decisions in my life. And I asked myself, am I going to regret that I did it? Or am I going to regret that I didn't do it? And it was one of those things where I was sitting on that airplane and I was like, this experience is going to change my life. I don't know how, but I know that it will. And it a thousand percent changed everything. So I would say that's probably the craziest thing I've done. Wow. Um, if you could instantly master any skill, what would it be? Oh no, you froze again. <laughs> Did he freeze for you, Conroy, or just me? I think he froze. He said, if you could instantly master any skill, what would it be? Oh gosh. Okay. I think learning a language because I'm like really bad at learning languages and I feel like it takes a lot of, it doesn't come very naturally to me. So if someone could just like implant some knowledge in my head and I could speak like, I don't know what language it would be, but some, <laughs> something, some language that would be cool. The other one back up to that would be cooking. Cause I hate cooking. Um, I don't want to learn how to do it, but I feel like if someone could just like implant something in my brain that would make me a cool cook, I think that would be good, but I would rather learn a language. Yeah. That wouldn't we all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Priya, this has been an amazing episode. Um, what do you have going next? Uh, where can people find you and support you? Yeah, so um, you can always follow me on Instagram. My name is Priya Reporter. And then you can watch my show. It's called Politically Speaking. And it comes on on Sundays, um, usually around 8 a.m. Or is it 9 a.m.? I think it's 9 a.m. <laughs> sorry. 9 a.m. on NBC. Depending on where you're at. After Meet the Press. Yeah, exactly. Or you can find it on YouTube too, by the way. And then usually on the weekdays, Monday through Friday, I'm on air at 5 and 6 p.m. on NBC7. You guys heard it here first. Finder, supporter. Again, this is an amazing episode, Priya. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And until next time, Priya, be authentic in everything that you do. Peace. Thanks, guys. Peace, man. What doesn't she do? 
Like, <laughs> like she's already right. done so much and still wants to accomplish so much. I'm blown away by, you know, everything she's doing. Mm-hmm. She, she's amazing. She's an amazing person. You know, like we were saying, this was the second time we recorded this. But the first time, I don't know. Like, I know she cares about reporting and I know how much she loves to craft. But I don't know about you, but this time I really got the sense. I feel like I really, she really captured how much she cares about this and not just about reporting. She cares about the people and she, she has a heart. And I, I just thought that was really cool to hear her and to, to watch her, uh, uh, get so into yeah, I completely agree. And, um, I think what I enjoyed most was understanding the importance of news reporters. I feel like now in this day and age, we can neglect news reporters and news stations, but it is because of them that people get their information. And so we ought to be supporting news stations not just getting our news from twitter or instagram yeah so shout out to all the reporters who are doing their job and doing real work um but you guys know what time it is it is a time of all times it is the friendship moment the friendship moment where tony and i are just learning about each other and we're having moments and these moments are live with you so tony do i have a question for you what is one thing that you've seen me grow in yeah that's the question i i've seen you i've seen you grow in your love of worship in a way that um really makes me want to worship more authentically um i remember when you first started getting into worship music and leading um you could tell you enjoyed it um and you had fun with it and now when i see you worship and even you know i saw uh valley worship's rendition of uh rest upon us like you have a desire to worship authentically and invite others to do likewise which is really dope Mm, yeah that's awesome no that's definitely been something i can see for sure yeah and 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 that's something i try to create in every space that i lead in um so thank you you. for noticing these are are moments bro yeah moments y'all continue to come on this journey with us Shout out to MSW Media and how you can become a part of this journey with us is you can go to our link tree, take a look at our merch. We have a Venmo, we have cash, we have we have everything. You can support us. You can buy some of your these t-shirts that we got. We got hats. One stop Whatever shop. you like, Let's let go. us know. We'll get it to you. But until next time, one stop shop. Until next time, be authentic in everything that you do. Peace out, yo. Peace out.